Good morning, everyone. Um, if you want to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3, um, we're going to be talking about pursuing the resurrection um, in the lesson this morning. Uh, and this lesson um, hopefully will be fairly simple. Um, even though the resurrection can be kind of this seemingly very intangible, ambiguous concept. And that's kind of why I wanted to preach on this this morning. Um, I was reading through the book of Acts recently, and something that is evident in the book of Acts is the resurrection was the lifeblood for the movement of Christianity. And really oftentimes in Acts and in the epistles as well, the resurrection is what's emphasized as the climax of the gospel more so than Jesus' death as well. Um, just some examples. You don't need to turn in your Bibles here, but in Acts chapter 4, verse 2, um, the people were being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So not just that they were teaching about the fact that Jesus was risen, but, at, but that in him is the resurrection from the dead. A little bit later in the book of Acts, when Paul the apostle is on trial, giving a defense for what he believes and what he's been preaching, um, in Acts chapter 23, verse 6, but perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. And so not just Jesus having been raised, but again, just generally that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous. Chapter 24, verses 14 through 16, uh, Paul again in defense of the resurrection but this I admit to you that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and, the, and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. And just a little bit further, chapter 26, verses uh, 6 through 8, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our 12 tribes, which he's speaking of the Jewish tribes of Israel, hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day. And for this hope, O king, I am being accused by the Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you people if God does raise the dead? So with how prominent the resurrection is, for instance, in the book of Acts, and I think we all know just even from a cursory reading of the epistles, that their resurrection, again, it's like the lifeblood that binds all things together in our faith. We, we saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as well. I really, from this lesson, I want to think about the resurrection more. Um, I want to understand it better. And I think if you're like me, the reason why you may struggle with understanding and thinking about the resurrection is because it's a very intangible concept. It can be difficult to kind of visualize anything or really cling to any symbol that really helps us to be able to have some kind of clear picture of what it is we're anticipating. So basing ourselves in 1 John chapter 3, kind of like the canvas for the lesson, um, I'm going to use 1 John chapter 3 as kind of like the outline of the lesson and we'll use some other scriptures as a reference. But really this is the question I want to focus on for this morning. Um, there is... So many different ways to approach the resurrection. There are so many things that are helpful and convicting about the resurrection. 
But really, this one question is really what I want to be focused on. How can we be more focused on and just better grasp the, the promise of our resurrection? The goal is that after the lesson this morning that we'll all be able to have a much clearer understanding of how we can be rooted in God's promise, not only that Jesus will return and, and has been risen, but that we will one day be risen and glorified with him in heaven. So 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. And again, we're going to kind of use these three verses as our canvas for the lesson. 1 John chapter 3, 1 through 3. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, for such and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself, just as he is pure. So this lesson is going to kind of come full circle. The the first point is going to have some similarities to the last. But how do we have a better grasp on the resurrection? How do we become more motivated by the resurrection? I think it starts with the reality of Jesus and the cross. I think the cross is deliberately given to us by God as a symbol that is very relatable. It's, it's very visual. It's very visceral, right? And you see people oftentimes wearing crosses. Um, you'll oftentimes see images of you know, a figure that represents Jesus on a cross So there's something, again, very tangible, very relatable about the image of the cross. But the image of the cross teaches us something necessary about the resurrection that I think is very important, about even the nature of the resurrection and eternal life. And it's in verse 1. How great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. You know, there's a verse that John, by inspiration, also authored that's probably the most famous Bible verse that's known generally throughout the world. John chapter 3, verse 16. You remember, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the love of God that is manifested in the cross, it teaches us, about the nature of the resurrection. And I want to think about that for just a moment. Go to 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. All of the reference verses I'm going to have on the board here underneath the, the points. Um, so this may even be in the same page in your Bible. Um, but 1 John 4, 9 and 10. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to to be the propitiation for our sins. How does this teach us about the resurrection? The resurrection, it seals the reality of Jesus' death. That if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then his death on the cross was not just a meaningless human death or not even just a powerful act of martyrdom. 
Jesus' death teaches us about our condition separated from God. It teaches us about the infinite depths of love that God freely displays to us when we're most unworthy and most undeserving. So the resurrection reflects back on the cross. It gives reality and meaning and depth to the cross. It makes the cross a necessary and relatable symbol of our need for God and our need for salvation. It represents how unworthy and undeserving we are of anything good from God, but how he lavishes us with grace and mercy when we're most undeserving. And the way that points to the resurrection is that tangible and relatable symbol teaches us that the resurrection is more about our relationship with God and about our need for God than it is just about receiving some physical promise of abundance in the resurrection. Uh, Many people I know, for instance, are very bothered by certain hymns that may be good to just not sing because of the ideas they, they present that are really not very biblical. There's a song we sing that demands that God take note that I want a crown that's silver lined. You know, I want a mansion. The idea of the resurrection is not demanding that God take note of, I want this and I want this and oh boy, oh boy, shower me with gold and silver when I get there. It's heaven is the place where we get to be with God. And it really doesn't matter at that point what else is there. The cross isolates us in seeing that the ultimate importance of the present is being with God in eternity. So the resurrection and its deliberate ambiguity, it reflects back on the clarity of the cross, and the cross gives us clarity on the resurrection. Look back at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 as well. Obviously, we can know Jesus very well. Just pay attention in the first four verses of 1 John, the terms that he uses to describe Jesus that give light to the resurrection and eternal life. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. What was from the beginning? What we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So one of the things you see here is Jesus is described as the life. Notice in verse 1, concerning the word of life. Verse 2, the life was manifested to us. So what John is describing is his vocabulary related to Jesus is very vast. You know, to, to John... Jesus was not just a person raised from the dead to be seated in a throne of authority, but Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is life. Do you remember in John chapter 14, Jesus would say in the presence of his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus himself is our life. He is the resurrection. And you notice how clear Jesus was to John. It's almost exhaustively emphasized. We've seen him. We've handled him. We've touched him. He was manifested. He appeared. We've seen him. We've heard him. We're writing about him because we've witnessed him. 
there is clarity to the reality of Jesus. It's so important that we remember that the Bible was written by men who were deeply invested and involved, involved in God's work. And that the apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. They had spent time with Jesus watching him and listening to him. They knew the sound of his voice. They knew what he looked like when he slept. They spent time with Jesus after he rose from the dead. And so to John, if we want to understand the resurrection, we understand Jesus. The more we understand Jesus, the more intimately invested we are in Jesus, the more we understand the resurrection. So how can we have a better grasp on the resurrection? How can we be more motivated to take hold of the promise of eternal life? It's in the reality of Jesus and the cross, first of all. So secondly, it's in the restoration that's in our baptism and the restoration of our bodies in the resurrection and the promises associated with that. Uh, Turn to Romans. We'll spend some time in Romans for these points. But as you're turning there, um, just related uh, to 1 John chapter 3, he says that we should be called children of God. And he mentions that we're going to be like him. So there's going to be some kind of transformation that is going to happen But that's an extension of the fact that we already could even be called children of God. Romans chapter 6. Let's turn there and look at some of the, uh, look at some things that are said here about this. So how can we be more focused and, and have a clearer grasp on the resurrection? This, I think, tells us some things that help us to have a more tangible understanding of what the resurrection really should look like to us. Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And just take note, remember in 1 John 3 mentioned It's not appeared what we will be, but we will be like him and see him as he is. Uh, Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So look at verse uh, verse 5. Did you know that if you were baptized into Christ, you have already experienced a very real resurrection? You know, he's not just talking in symbolic and figurative language. You know, we've looked at this many times in lessons in the past. Ephesians chapter 2 mentions that when you were dead in sin, God raised you up to be seated with Christ where he is in the heavenly places. Colossians chapter 2 mentions the same thing that being buried with him in baptism, you are also raised up to be with him in the heavenly places through faith in the working of God. And so a common reflection to Christians in these letters is that when they chose by faith to be responsive to God's promise to receive remission for sins in baptism, God did a work at that point to bury our life with Jesus and crucify us with him but also to raise us with him, to walk in newness of life. So our baptism is meant to be a very clear symbol of what it is that the resurrection is really all about. And what is it here? It's about unity with Jesus, unity with his death, 
so that death and sin would no longer have mastery over us or dominion over us. It's about ending our association with the world and with things that are temporal that will one day be burned and be vanished from existence. It's about attaching us to the glory of Christ's resurrection. It's about bringing us into complete unity with God and with the power that is in heaven to bring all things in subjection to him. It's about freeing us from the burdens of sin, from the brokenness of sin. And so baptism is meant to be a very clear, very vivid representation of what the resurrection is all about. And again, the resurrection is not so much for us meant to be the idea that we will receive physical prosperity, but rather that we are seeking freedom from the things that separate us from God. We are seeking the freedom to serve God and be as close to God as we possibly can be. And we are experiencing as we grow in the grace of God, as we grow in godly character, we are experiencing very actively the love of God in a way that binds us more and more closely to the God who has sanctified and redeemed us and freed us from sin. If you look at chapter 8, verses 15 through 18, um, and this is dealing with the redemption of our bodies. One of the things that can be difficult about the resurrection is, you know, what, what will it be like? Kind of like 1 Corinthians 15. Well, what, what body will there be? Um, and one of the things that I think maybe is from the influence of just worldly ideologies or uh, philosophies, sometimes it can seem like the resurrection is like this wispy existence where like, I don't know, you, you become like this very transparent, almost like smoke-like being, you know, and just kind of vanish around. Um, but that's not what the Bible teaches about the resurrection. Look at chapter 8 of Romans 15 through 18. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. If you look down at verse 23 through 25, and not only this, but we, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. So there's something obviously unseen that we're hoping for, because if, if we see it, well then what place is there for hope? But if you look at verse 23, what are we anticipating? What are we waiting eagerly for? It's the redemption of our body. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 15 where he's talking about how a seed does not obviously bear the form of the plant that spouts from it. It's quite different. But the seed and the plant are still obviously necessarily connected to one another, right? And so the teaching you see in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians 6, Romans 8, verse 23, Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, again and again it's emphasized that there will be a bodily resurrection, now, it's not going to be that I'm going to be and you are going to be in the present form that we see, but in some way, there is importance assigned to the fact that 
we need to live in a pure way because God is going to transform the humble form of our body into a glorified existence. And that glorified existence is not less tangible than our physical existence, but rather it's that what is unseen is more substantial. It has more glory, more power than what is currently tangibly in the present, right? So something that helps us anticipate the resurrection is recognizing that God is going to transform our humble existence into a heavenly existence. I want to think for a moment very practically about why this is so motivating. So for one, think about my laptop here. This is, a, I think, like a 2015 MacBook Pro. I've used it for a very long time. And these stickers here are coffee shop stickers from all sorts of different places I've been, including Savannah. And I have somewhat of an emotional attachment to these stickers because I love the places I've been. I love the experiences I've been able to have at these coffee shops. But if somebody bought me, I'm not saying anybody should do this, like a 2021 MacBook Air, then despite all of my attachment to this computer, I'm okay putting it away, right? Because something greater has been given where let's say that the deal was you need to use this until it dies, but you have this greater piece of technology waiting for you. Well, now it no longer matters as much, the condition of this from that point forward. Look back at Romans chapter 8, verse 17 and 18. If we understand the reality that we will be transformed, that our humble estate is going to be regenerated, restored, renewed, then it no longer matters as much the condition that we're in in the present. One of the most important principles of the resurrection and why it's so important to grasp it, if we understand the resurrection the way that Paul understood it, Peter, John, the resurrection uniquely motivates willful loss. Another way to put it is the resurrection motivates a fully sacrificial life. And that's not to say that like my life is automatically completely sacrificial, but just that that's the road it leads us down. Is It motivates me the more I understand the promise of the resurrection, the more okay I become with loosening my grip on the things of the present to gain the things of eternity in the process. Second reason why this is very important and the restoration of our bodily condition. Think about even members who are here. You know, Jesus, when he was on earth, he healed people who touched him. And I've thought too little about how important that is for us even presently. You know, oftentimes we may pray for brethren to be helped or healed while knowing that, you know, probably is unlikely to happen presently as fully as we may wish. And that may be the end of the thought. But I haven't given enough credit. There is a promise for miraculous healing, but it's not in the present. Think about Miss Betty, you know, and how much she struggles to walk into this building and how much she loves being with God's people. Miss Betty will be glorified in the resurrection. You think about Mr. Bill, you know, and needing to sit in a wheelchair, hunched over, only being able to sit for a temporary amount of time. With Mr. Bill, there is a promise of glory and uh, the restoration of his condition in the resurrection. Think about 
Miss Grace, you know, and how much she struggles with her health and how much of a sacrifice it is and a risk it is for her to be here with, with her illness uh, stemming from an ongoing thing in her lungs that makes it uh, so that she's vulnerable. With Miss Grace, no matter what the promise of the present holds, there is a promise in the resurrection of complete restoration. Think about Glenn and Cody with their migraines and how difficult those things can be to handle. There is a promise of complete restoration in the resurrection. And in thinking about these things, I've been thinking about how much I need to change how I pray. You know, that yes, we we ought to pray that brethren be helped uh, in the present, if that's possible and if that's God's will. But when God says no to those prayers, it's not because our story ends there. It's because what is withheld in the present brings eternity more clearly into view. And the more we love one another, the more we yearn for those promises of eternity when we see the light of the fact that we can be fully restored in the resurrection with Jesus, right? There's also other ways to think about this. You think about Stephen, how much Stephen struggles with mental difficulties. Those difficulties will be abolished in the resurrection. Paul, how much Paul wishes he could read more clearly and read more readily and comprehend more. There will be no struggle with comprehension in the resurrection. All of our deficiencies, every single one, the promise of restoration is held in the glory of the resurrection. And that's motivating. Finally, again, it comes full circle. The ultimate promise of the resurrection is in our reunion with God. I want to go to the Psalms just for a minute because the resurrection, it really is not just a New Testament concept. Um, You know, and that that should be fairly obvious because in Jesus' day, you had the Pharisees who it says multiple times they acknowledged the resurrection while the Sadducees denied it, right? So even in Jesus' day, before he came, people already believed in the resurrection. The Psalms. I love the Psalms because the psalmists use very tangible language to describe for us what is oftentimes intangible. Psalm 23, verse 6. It's very easy to overlook, I think. Because for some reason, I think it's easy to think, well, you know, in the Old Testament, they never talked about the resurrection. That wasn't clear until, you know, Jesus. But look at this. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What does David mean by that? I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Well, how? One of the beautiful things that the Old Testament did with its very physical images and representations of heavenly things is it gave the psalmists an opportunity to very clearly understand and relate to God on invisible realities that they could anticipate very eagerly. And this helps me because oftentimes in the New Testament, I get the cheat sheet that makes me take things for granted. I think, well, heaven, you know, and heaven is... Just this ambiguous thing. But understanding eternal life for the psalmist was not as easy as just one term, heaven. Kind of condensing all of these eternal ideas together. They had to work to meditate on and and wrestle with things to come to these conclusions that God is a shepherd who is leading me on the path of righteousness down a path to a destination. 
And God exists outside of what is physical and he's obviously invested in me and God is a deliverer and a refuge. And if God is guiding me in the paths of righteousness, even through the shadow of death, then surely there is a destination. And if that destination is not the present, it is that I'm going to be with him forever. Psalm 27 verse 4 is another example where the psalmists speak of eternity. And and these are just two passages. The Psalms are flooded with references to the resurrection. But again, they don't say resurrection. They don't say heaven. Um, They don't even necessarily say eternal life. They'll say everlasting and forever. But so you kind of have to work a little harder to say, oh, well, they're talking about an eternal existence with God here, which they do often. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to meditate in his temple. You know, I love the song that Cody led, I stand in awe of you. You are beautiful beyond description, majesty enthroned above, and I stand in awe of you. What beautiful lyrics. You know, I think about David and all the tribulations that he suffered in his life. One of the things that I think you could think about to describe these ideas in the Psalms and what we'll see in 1 Thessalonians in just a moment. You can think about the resurrection as a reunion after a torturous period of separation. I don't know if a lot of you have seen some of the videos that are very, very moving when um, military personnel surprise their kids at school or something. And after like years of being away or overseas or something, they come back and they surprise like their son and their daughter when they're in the middle of their schoolwork. I remember um, I went through a phase a few years ago where I just would like watch as many of those videos as I could because I I just thought they were so encouraging. Um, But I remember there was one video where there was a boy playing basketball. looked like he was about 13. And his mom had returned and surprised him in the middle of his game. And when he saw his mom, he completely collapsed. He literally could not walk. And he fell down and leaned against a wall and just sobbed uncontrollably. He couldn't stand up, and so his mom had to just come and embrace him. That is the resurrection to the children of God. And one of the most amazing things no matter the excitement David expresses or what's said in Romans chapter 8 about yearning, Abba, Father, you you want to be with God more than you want anything else. We will never be as excited to see God as God is to see us. And you think it's not just the boy who sobs uncontrollably, but for us it will be God who is more overwhelmed than we can ever imagine to finally get to see us after all of the risks and troubles of the present. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Because um, one of the comforting, comforting things about the resurrection is it's, it's not just a reunion with God, although it is primarily the motivation that we want to be with God forever. We hate the fact that we can't see God with our eyes yet, that we could lose our salvation by turning away from God. We hate the fact 
that Satan is at work in the world, that he's scheming against us, that he wants to take us away from God and rob us of our inheritance. We hate that we're surrounded by those who don't yet know God and don't bow the knee to him or respect the glory of his worthiness to be praised. We want so badly just to be set into his presence like a permanent stone or pillar in his temple. But we also anticipate being there with his saints. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as to the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, come comfort one another with these words. You know, you could read verse 17 and think, well, then what? You know, okay, yeah, we're, we're caught up and, you know, we're, we meet the Lord in the air, but where do we go then? What happens? You know, I want to know more. To those who love God, the end of verse 17, that's it. That's the end of the story. It doesn't matter what happens after that. Because once this happens, we'll always be with the Lord. And that's it. Nothing else needs to be promised after that. It doesn't matter what else is involved in eternal existence as long as I always get to be with the Lord. It's okay. I think it's important as well that this image captivates us, this scene. I have a friend who uh, lived in a trailer outside a place where, I can't remember where it was, but apparently they would test bombs in this place. And the bombs would go off, and it was very startling. It would, I mean, it would get your attention, like, no doubt. Because um, sometimes you could think, like, you know, you look out the window and you hear a weird noise, and you're like, is God coming now? You, know, you kind of wonder, like, you know, is it, is it happening right now? What's described here, though, is there will be no mistaking the day of the Lord. It's not going to be one of those things where you look out the window and kind of look down the street and, you know, is it happening or isn't it? Nobody's going to miss the day that the Lord comes. There will be no Armageddon battle. There's no Christ returning to Israel to sit on his throne for a thousand years. None of that. It is going to be in the twinkling of an eye. The trumpet will sound. The dead in Christ are going to be raised. And you imagine how overwhelming it's going to be. Where all of a sudden the condition that we're in is just changed dramatically. We see Jesus. We're brought up together with him. And then comes the judgment and we're with the Lord. You know, this image should stay in our minds. It should be something that we wake up in the morning and think, God, Maranatha today. You know, if today's the day where the trumpet sounds, God, please help me to be ready. We go to sleep at night and in our prayers we pray, God, if tonight is the night where you come and the trumpet sounds, God, Maranatha, may it be. Because to those that love the Lord in verse 18, there is nothing more comforting than the day of the Lord. So finally, as an invitation, turn back to 1 John chapter 3. Because although there is comfort, with great grace, with great gifts, there ought to be a response. 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, after he talks about we're going to be like him just as he is, we'll see him as he is, 
Verse 3, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. The promise of the resurrection calls for life-changing decisions and nothing else is adequate. The promise of the resurrection calls for heart-changing decisions, radical life-changing conditions. The promise of the resurrection, even if we have been baptized into Christ, the promise of the resurrection has unique power to still motivate me to make sacrificial, life-changing decisions. And if you're here this morning and, and you're not even a part of God's kingdom at this point, the promise of the resurrection is not a comfort. It is a terror. Because God will judge each person on the basis of Jesus. And if you have not been baptized into Jesus Christ and responded to the gospel because of what Jesus has done, imagine the indignation of a father who is holding you accountable for a harm done to his only loved son. And we just need to be very aware of the seriousness of the reality of God's judgment. That to many, the resurrection will be a resurrection of judgment. And when Jesus spoke of hell, he spoke of it unapologetically. That some will live forever, but not with God. Because those who live in eternity with God are those who deliberately chose to pursue it with him. And they wanted to be there with him. So that's the invitation for this morning. If there's anything we can do for you this morning, we would love to help you and encourage you and bless you as God has blessed us in the same way. We stand and sing an invitation song.